Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Sunday school that they must write down uh, during the sermon so that then they can then at the end see how many times that word was mentioned. And our word for this morning is the word hope. So children, our word for this morning that you must be counting is the word hope. You might have come across the phrase that says, It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. And Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, uh, Believe in the Age of Skepticism, expands on this phrase and he says these words. The faith that changes the life and connects to God is best conveyed by the word trust. He says, imagine you're on a cliff and you lose your footing and begin to fall. Just beside you as you fall is a branch sticking out out of the very edge of the cliff. And he says, it is your only hope and it is more than strong enough to support your weight. How can this save you? He says, if your mind is filled with intellectual certainty that the branch can support you, but you don't actually reach out and grab it, you are lost. But if your mind is instead filled with doubts and uncertainty that the branch can hold you, but you reach out and grab grab the branch, you will be saved anyway. And so he goes on to say that it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. That strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong object, on a strong branch. And so really just thinking about this and thinking that we live in an age today where a message is being taught out there that is in sincerity that matters. That it is not really what you believe, but it is how you believe it. Are you sincere in what you believe and that that is the thing that will lead you to you being saved? You know, we're often told that, you know, it doesn't matter what religion you belong to, that a sincere Buddhist who keeps on to that religion and does everything sincerely will ultimately be saved. Or a sincere Muslim or someone who believes in ancestral worship We are told that it is the type and strength of faith, but not really the object of your faith that matters. And in our text this morning, we're going to see a conversation between the Lord Jesus Christ and Nicodemus that helps us to see that the object of your faith matters, that who you believe in and who you are hoping in matters. It is not just merely how sincerely you are holding on to that. And so if you've got your Bibles with me this morning, let us turn to the Gospel of John chapter 3. I will be reading it from the English Standard Version. Hear the reading from God's word. We're told in verse 1 that now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is the reading of God's word. So we see from the reading that this text presents before us a conversation, a dialogue that happens between the Lord Jesus and a man who's called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is introduced to us in verse 1. We are told that he was a man of the Pharisees and a ruler of the Jews. And as you're thinking from what you know about the Pharisees, there were people that were more affiliated to the temple, people who were religious. So it is then quite interesting here that John, in introducing Nicodemus to us, introduces him as a ruler of the Jews. Not just someone who's a religious leader, but someone who's a ruler of the Jews. And for us to be able to understand who Nicodemus was and why John is introducing him here to us as a ruler of the Jews, we need to go back a, a few hundred years into the history of Israel. Israel was a nation that God had given kings and they went on sinning and disobeying the Lord that eventually God sent through nations to come, invade them and eventually take them into captivity. And we see in Chronicles and Kings that the last king that Israel had was King Zedekiah. And that's when they were taken into Babylon. And later on, the pagans come and they defeat the Babylonians and they allow them to go back to their land, to come back from captivity. But they do not allow Israel to have a king. And so Israel now goes through this period where they don't have a civil government anymore. And even the pagans, having allowed them to go back to their land, they don't allow them to have a king. They, they, because they are people under occupation. And later on, the Persians fall to the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and the same situation continues where again Israel is without a civil government. And things get even worse for them under the Greeks, for Alexandra commands that all the nations that the Greeks have conquered be infused with Greek, so much so that this man that we're going to be looking at this morning, Nicodemus, his name actually has Greek origins, despite him being described to us here as a ruler of the Jews. And later on, the, the, the Romans come in and they also invade and capture the Jews. And so that is where we find ourselves this morning, where the Jews are people under occupation. They don't have their own civil government. And so during this time where they've had no king, where they've had no civil leader or ruler, the, the, those who are from the church, the leaders from the temple, had their status within the Jewish community elevated. So that this morning then we see here that Nicodemus, who has affiliation to the temple, is described to us as a leader of the Jews. And so you can almost see him, not just as a, as a Pharisee here, but also as a representative of the Jewish nation. Not necessarily as a, a formally appointed leader, but within the community, the Pharisees and those with around the temple were seen as part of the ruling class. But John also tells us here that Nicodemus was a man of the Pharisees. So who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were a religious sect. They were a group of people who were, they are called separatists. They were people who sought to keep God's law. You know, during this time where Israel went through a period of not having any kings and during the intertestamental period where they did not hear a word from the Lord, they then rose this sect that sought to look at God's word and make sure that God's word was obeyed within Israel. And their zeal went beyond what the law commanded, so much so that they started to take their own interpretations of the law and put them on the same footing as the law itself. And we see examples of these where the Pharisees had added to the law by making their inter interpretations of what was called the Pharisaic traditions, or the traditions of the Pharisees, part of the law. And as you read through the Gospels, you see clashes between them and the Lord Jesus Christ because of this very thing where they have added on to the law. And to give you an example of an instance where the Pharisees had added on to what the law had commanded. You know, the Mosaic law had the, the law of the Sabbath, that the Jews were not to work on the Sabbath, that they were to take that as a day of rest. But in trying to interpret what does this mean, the Pharisees then sought to define what does the word work actually mean. And so they created 39 different categories of work 
And within each of those categories, there were many other subcategories. And so then the Jews then found themselves, in terms of just wanting to keep the Sabbath, there were a whole lot of laws that the Pharisees had created to try and make sure that people kept the Sabbath. So that was their way of trying to make sure that people obeyed the law. And so you can imagine some of the things that they did using the example of the Sabbath here, that you know, there were laws that then regulated in terms of how many steps can you take on the Sabbath before you're considered breaking the Sabbath. How many letters can you write on the Sabbath before you're, you're considered to be someone who breaks the Sabbath? And so despite the, the Pharisees' own shortcomings in terms of how they added on to the law, they nonetheless were people who were seen to have zeal for God's law. They were a people who were seen to show and possess external righteousness within Israel. Even though their righteousness was not one from the heart, but there were people who wanted to be seen and worked hard to be seen as those who were righteous in terms of keeping the law. And we see this also in other instances where the disciples of Christ were eating without washing their hands and the Pharisees jumped up and said, look, they're defiling themselves. And Christ had to explain to them there that it is not the external things that pollute it, but it is what comes from the heart. And so we see here that Nicodemus comes as someone who's a ruler of the Jews or a representative of the Jews, but he also comes as someone who possesses a lot of external righteousness. And John also tells us in verse 2 that he came to Christ by night. We are not told specifically why Nicodemus comes to Christ by night, but commentators have a few reasons as to why, or there are a few possible, uh, uh, possibilities as to why Nicodemus comes to Christ by night. One is that maybe Nicodemus wanted to benefit from the cloak of darkness, you know, not to be seen coming to, try, coming to seek to learn from Christ, and so he comes in the night. And another reason is that given the time that it is in Jerusalem now, the time of the festivals, that Jerusalem was busy, that Christ would have been crowded during the day. And so in seeking to have a moment of a private conversation with the Lord, Nicodemus seeks to then come to him during the night. But one of the other reasons is that when John uses the word night in the Gospel of John, typically he uses it to describe the state of the heart or the state of the person that he's talking about. And so the word night here is also then mentioned here to signify the state within which Nicodemus was coming, that he was a man who was in darkness. He was not a man who was coming from the light. And we see that he saw himself with his external righteousness, that he was right before the Lord, but yet he was a man who was in darkness rather. And we see this elsewhere within the book of John, in John chapter 11, the Lord Jesus Christ says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, for the light is not in him. And so the man who comes here to have a conversation with the Lord Jesus Christ, he comes as a ruler of the Jews. He comes representing Jewish hopes and expectations, but he also comes as a man with external righteousness of a Pharisee. And so again, what I want you to see here is that the, the Pharisees typically were people who used and abused their position, but they were within their rank, those who were sincere. And we will see here that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but his uh, approach to his religion, there was some sincerity in that. And Nicodemus, you think of him as someone who falls within the category of the, the Jews that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10, where he says that there are people who've got a zeal for God, even though it is zeal without knowledge. But now, so that is the man, Nicodemus, who comes to speak to the Lord Jesus Christ. And now John moves on to, to, to start the dialogue for us in verse 2, the conversation between the, uh, Nicodemus and the Lord Jesus. So in verse 2, we are told that Nicodemus says to Christ, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And in verse 3 we read, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you. I don't know if you notice that there's something odd about the flow of those two verses there. You know, we, we hear a statement being made by Nicodemus in verse 2, but yet in verse 3, that we are told that Jesus answers him. What question was asked? What question did Nicodemus pose to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 2 that warranted the response that we see in verse 3? And not only that, even if we were to look at the statement that Nicodemus makes in verse 2 and say that that is a question, the response in verse 3 still doesn't flow. For Nicodemus says to Christ in verse 2, we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. But Jesus says, 
truly, truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. There seems to be a break in that day. What question is Christ responding to? And so even though it is not evidently clear from the text, we're then going to try and see what can we glean from what is presented in the text here that can help us to see what question was implied by the statement that Nicodemus makes in verse 2. And we will try and leverage what is in the text, but it's also just important for us to realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, being God, saw through what was in Nicodemus's heart. He could sense, he could see beyond the statement that Nicodemus makes here. And so we saw earlier on, in, or rather we see earlier on in John chapter 2, that after Christ had done some miracles, there were people that believed in him because of the miracles that he had done. But we are told that Christ did not entrust himself to these people because he knew what was in man and he needed no one to bear witness to him about man. So Christ here being God, clearly he knows more, he can see more into the heart of Nicodemus. But I, think, I still think that within the context here, there is enough for us to try and discern what question did Nicodemus pose to Christ that warranted the response that we see in verse 3. And so one of the ways that we can try and discern what was the question that Nicodemus asked is to try and work back from the answer itself. So Christ answers him by saying, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So now what possible question could Nicodemus have been asking? What possible question could Christ have discerned that Nicodemus was asking that prompted this response? It could maybe have been that Nicodemus has asked the Lord, have you come to announce the coming of the kingdom of God? You know, that could be something that we know that the Jews had an expectation that the kingdom of God was going to come. So maybe Nicodemus is asking, have you come to announce the coming of the kingdom? But that doesn't perfectly fit with the answer. For Christ doesn't respond about whether he's come to announce the kingdom or not, but he responds specifically to how one gets to see and enter the kingdom. And so then maybe then the question that was on the heart of Nicodemus that the Lord responds to is this. He's asking Christ here, have you come to announce the coming of the kingdom of God, which is for the Jews and even more so for those of us who possess the righteousness of the Pharisees? So he sees himself as one who has so walked and disciplined himself to try and keep the law. And now he's coming to this teacher who's come to Israel, this teacher whose words are being attested to by miracles, to try and confirm from him, have you come to announce this kingdom, the coming of the kingdom of God? And this view can be further supported from the context within which the Jews were living themselves. As I mentioned earlier, that the Jews were living under occupation. There were Roman soldiers in the streets. They were being forced to pay taxes to Rome. They did not like the situation that they lived under. And so there was a, a general hope and expectation within Israel that God will come and save them, that God will come and liberate them, that God will come and overthrow this government that had been oppressing them. And this hope or general expectation of that God was going to come and save them is not something that is unfounded. For within the scriptures we see earlier on in the Davidic covenant in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God makes the promise to David, he says to him that there will be an offspring of his that will sit on the throne and that, that offspring's throne will be established forever. So the Jews, even though they have no king of their own at this point in time, there is the expectation that there is a coming king of the line of David who is going to come and set them free from the, liberate, from the people who are oppressing them. But it is not only from the promise of the Davidic covenant, but we also see when God makes the promise of the new covenant to the people of Israel, that even within that, we see that there is something that speaks to how God is going to bring renewal to the nation of Israel. So we see in instances where God makes the promise of the new covenant where he speaks of that he's going to come to give them a new heart and a new spirit. So there is then a general expectation in Israel that something will change, that their situation is not permanent. So then Nicodemus could have been coming here to Christ to try and ask, have you come to announce the coming of the kingdom of God? That which we are ready for because we are, in, we are God's chosen ones. That kingdom is for us. But what does Christ say to Nicodemus here? Christ does not confirm whether he has come to announce the coming of the kingdom, and we know that that's what he has come to do, for the message he's been preaching to people is that they must repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. But in this instance, he goes to the heart. He goes to the heart of what Nicodemus was asking. 
He sees that Nicodemus had assumed that what he was as a Jew and how he had lived as a Pharisee, that that entitled him to entrance into the kingdom of God. And that is the question that Christ responds to. But nonetheless, again, I want us to see here that Nicodemus was sincere in his asking. You know, he does not come arrogantly here like some of the Pharisees that we see. So for one, we see in verse 2 that he calls him rabbi. We know that you are a teacher. You know, he comes seeking to learn from, from Christ, coming to seek clarity from Christ. And we also see there that he says to him that we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do these things unless God is with him. And we have seen in other instances, in the, for example, in the book of Matthew, how the other Pharisees reacted to the works of Christ, that they accused him of doing the signs and wonders by the power of the king of demons. So there's something here, there's something different about the approach of Nicodemus. And the we there in verse 2 again just reminds us that this man is coming as a ruler of the Jews. He's not saying, I know that you're a teacher come from God, but rather that we know. So you can see that he's, he's representing a corporate expectation and a corporate hope of the coming of the kingdom of God. But rather than Christ telling him that, yes, I've come from God, as Nicodemus asked or states, he goes to the heart. He pierces through the statement that Nicodemus makes and goes to the heart of the matter. He goes to where his hope lies and tells him that the only way to see the kingdom is for you to be born again. That all these other things that you are holding on to, all these other things that you think are going to get you in, those things are not going to work. Are not going to work. That the only way for you to see the kingdom of God is for you to be born again. And so before we move on, it's, it's worth pausing here to also have a point of reflection, as I mentioned at the beginning, that, you know, that we, we're trying to see from this text here something that takes us back to basics. What are we trusting in? What have we placed our hope in? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and your hope is in the fact that, you know, you belong to the Reformed tradition. You know, you believe the Reformed doctrines. You know, you hold on to, to the old age old traditions that have been passed on from generation to generation. And because you hold on to those, you then assure yourself that you are within the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's even the, the, the denomination that you belong to say, because I'm a Baptist, I know that I'm within the kingdom. Is that what you are holding on to? Instead of what Christ says here, that being born again is how you enter into the kingdom of God. So we must check what it is that we are holding on to this morning. Or maybe... You are trusting in long service, the fact that you've been a Christian for many years. You know, you're like, I've got many years under my belt of sitting in the pews or chairs in our context. You know, where you think that I've got 20, 30, 40, even 60 years of being a Christian. And because of that, because I've walked the long road, because I've been found among God's people for so long, of course I'm going to be admitted into the kingdom. Of course I am in. So again, let's just check there that is that what you are holding on to? instead of holding on to what Christ says, that to enter the kingdom, one must be born again. Or maybe you're holding on to your knowledge of scripture, your head knowledge, how you've comprehended the Bible. You know it from cover to cover. You, know, you are able to, to quote from books that other people have not even heard of. You, know, you quote from Obadiah. <laughs> or you, you're someone who's like, you know, I know what was Samuel's other name. You know, you know that the minute details of scripture, and that is what you are holding on to. You are saying, because of this, I know, I am trusting, I am hoping that I am within the kingdom. So again, the question is, we must check ourselves. Or maybe like the Jews, you are trusting in your lineage. You know, they looked at their connection to Abraham and that they were the children of Abraham and said, of course they are going to be in the kingdom of God. And maybe you look back to your own lineage and you are saying, my great-grandfather was a Christian. My grandfather was a Christian. My father was a Christian. And I too am in the church. Of course I'm going to be included into the kingdom of God. So again, let's just check those assumptions that we're making. What are we holding on to? What are we trusting in, in terms of us being admitted into the kingdom of God? Or maybe you're coming completely from the other side. You're looking at your own life, how hard it's been, how much you've suffered how difficult your life has been. And you're saying, because I have not had an easy life, God has an obligation to show me grace. God has an obligation to, be, to show me mercy and get, grant me admittance into his kingdom. It is because of the life I have lived that I'm entitled to God's grace. And then you just assume, because things have been difficult, therefore I am going to be included in the kingdom. But again, we must check here, like, 
that like Nicodemus, we're not holding on to that which is not what Christ says here, that we must be born again. And so it is not the strength of your faith, because all these things, you can hold to them as sincerely as you want. You can hold to them very tightly and believe them, but that doesn't matter, because the object of what you're holding on to, it is not the thing that saves. So it is important that then we check that the object of our faith, what is that? Are we holding on to the right thing to make sure that indeed we are saved? So Christ says there to Nicodemus in verse 3 that unless one is born again, they, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I would assume now like Nicodemus, if you have not come across this before, you would now start to wonder, wait, what? Born again? What does that even mean? You know, listen to what Nicodemus says. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he go back again a second time and enter his mother's womb and be born? You know, it sounds ridiculous what Christ is suggesting. It sounds like an impossibility. And that is exactly the point that Christ wants to put across. That the act of being born again is an impossible task. It is a task that you cannot do yourself. And so he's comparing here, and Nicodemus looks at this in natural human terms to say, how can I be born a second time in this flesh? But we'll see just now that Christ is not talking about being born of the flesh. And something else, again, just to see in Nicodemus' response or question in verse 4, that, again, he's, he's, there's a sign of sincerity here that he indeed wants to learn. For whenever Christ has come across the other Pharisees and he's given them answers that they do not like, we see them getting angry. We see them hardening their hearts and wanting to take action against him. But what does Nicodemus do here? He seeks further clarity. He wants to understand. So that again just shows us that this man, Nicodemus here, was a man who sincerely sought to understand. He sincerely sought, inquired of this teacher who, was, who had come to Israel. But before we look at what does it actually mean to be born again, it is important for us to consider why is that even a requirement. For Christ says today in verse 3 that unless one is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Why is it important that a person be born again for them to see the kingdom of God? And the reason for that is that God is holy and we are not. God is holy and he is perfect and he is sinless and he is pure and he stands completely separated on the one end. And we stand on the other hand drenched in sin with our sinfulness. And that which is sinful can never mix with that which is righteous. So we have a problem now. For us to then be included into the kingdom of God, something has to change. We cannot come to, we cannot as we are in our sinfulness with, with our sins drenched like that, go and be in God's kingdom. Something has to change. Something has to, to, to happen within us that changes the nature that we are in, such that then we can be in a state that is acceptable into the kingdom of God. And so Christ responds to Nicodemus in verse 5 to explain, what does it mean for one to be born again? Because Nicodemus asked, you know, how can one be born again? So Christ says in verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and, his, and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he clarifies that when he talks about someone being born again, it is not an old man going back. I think there's a movie that we saw once where someone started old and went all the way back. You know? So it's not that. You know? This is something different. The birth that he's talking about here, it is being born of water in the spirit. And then the question then is, what does it mean to be born of water in the spirit? Because Christ is saying here, that's, that's what has to happen to you, for you to be admitted into the kingdom of God, for you to enter the kingdom of God, as he says in verse 5. You must be born of water in the spirit. And for us to, to try and understand what Christ means here, we must again understand the context within which Christ is now and the context within which Nicodemus is, where, to which Christ is speaking. You know, the, the Bible that they had at the time was the Old Testament. So if Christ is then explaining things, you would expect him to use references that Nicodemus would be familiar with from the scriptures. And so for us now, as we're seeking to understand what does the Lord Jesus mean when he says, one must be born of water in the spirit, we must then go back to the Old Testament and see in what instances do we see the mention of water and the spirit in the Old Testament. And so water, oftentimes, when it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's used to refer to renewal or cleansing, especially when it's used in conjunction with the Spirit. 
And the spirit itself, when it's mentioned in the Old Testament, it's often associated with life. And we see this even with creation, that the spirit gives life. And there are many other instances in the, where the Old Testament writers look forward to God's spirit being poured out that leads to that renewal. You know, just to, to name a few instances, in Isaiah 32, the prophet Isaiah says there that, you know, in verse 15, that until the spirit is poured out upon us on high, the wilderness becomes a, a fruitful field and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. You know, the spirit of God comes and a wilderness becomes a fruitful field and that field turns into a forest. That's the impact that the spirit of God has. Or elsewhere in Isaiah 44, we are told the Lord says that he will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on dry ground, that you'll pour out, I'll pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And then he says in verse 4, Isaiah 44, that they shall spring up among the grass like willows and flowing streams. You see that the spirit brings renewal. The spirit and water, they, 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 whenever we see them in the Old Testament, they are used to signify instances where there's change, there's cleansing and there's renewal and regeneration. And the place where we see this even more clearly is in the promise of the new covenant that the Lord makes through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 36. And I'm just going to ask you to turn there with me. Please keep your place in John chapter 3, but just turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36. In verse 25 of Ezekiel chapter 36, the Lord says these words, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. Within this text, we see two things, that there are two acts of transformation that the Lord does. Firstly, in verse 25, we see the role of the water. The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. As I explained earlier that, you know, for us to enter the kingdom of God, we've got a problem because we are drenched in sin. But here the Lord says that he will wash us clean, that he will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. He will cleanse you. And secondly, he talks about a transformation of the heart in verse 26. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will place within you. And he says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a, new, a heart of flesh. And so we see here that water and the spirit, as Christ mentions here in verse 5, that one must be born of water and the spirit in verse 5 on John chapter, on chapter, on chapter 3. It signifies this renewal that we see described for us here in Ezekiel chapter 36. That God washes us clean of our sins. That we come to him with all the sins that we've committed and he washes us clean. But not only that, because if he washed us clean of all the sins but left the heart in here, the heart that is still inclined to sin, the heart that is still inclined to hate God, our problem would not go away. Because as soon as he's done washing us, we'll start to put mud on ourselves again. So God washes us clean and then changes that heart, gives us a new heart, such that then we now have a heart that now is inclined towards God that we now have a heart that hates sin and a heart that desires the things that are right. As we see there in Ezekiel 36, that it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and my rules and be careful to obey them. So when Christ is talking here about people being born again, he's talking about a complete transformation. And so Nicodemus is right to be surprised in terms of how is this even possible? How can someone be born again? It is a something that is this impossible, for it requires a complete renewal. You are becoming a new person, but you're not becoming a new person by being born again in the flesh, for that is not what Christ is talking about here. He's talking about this act of God in making us born again in this way. And Christ goes on to say to Nicodemus, in verse 6, that that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Just again emphasizing here that I'm not talking about a physical birth. I'm talking of a spiritual birth here. I'm talking of a work that is done by the spirit. This is not something that you can do yourself. 
And he says to me in verse 7, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Christ is emphasizing to Nicodemus that, you know, we cannot understand or control the Spirit. The Spirit works as he wills, but the effects of the Spirit we see. So we don't try here and discern and understand how the mechanics of how this works. But we are trusting that it is God who works through the Spirit to bring about this new creation within us. And so all who are born of the Spirit have their origin and destiny in God himself. And a secondary point here to think about as we're thinking about being born of the Spirit or that it is a work of the Spirit that we cannot understand, but just like we can hear the wind, that the effects of the Spirit we can also discern. And so if someone has been born again, if someone has been transformed, if they've been given this new nature, the, the, the effects of that will be visible. You know, that the changed heart, you will see the evidence of that within your life. You will see that the things that you used to love, the things that you used to enjoy that God hates, you now do not love and enjoy anymore. So there is this transformation that we see here. And so that just calls us to think of the fruits of the Spirit. You know, that God transforms us in such a way that we are now different people and that difference is discernible, just like we can hear the wind as it blows. But Nicodemus continues in verse 9. He hears what Christ is saying and you can imagine that he came to Christ just seeking confirmation that Christ had come to bring the good news that the kingdom of God was now here, that he had prepared himself to enter this kingdom. But what does he get? He gets his entire foundation shaken. What he had hoped in, what he had held on to, gets completely shaken here. And so he asks in verse 9, how can these things be? You know, how can I do that? You know, I, I've worked and I had figured out a system. I had looked to follow the law and even so that I have even added little things to help me along the way that I never break the commandments. You know, and we looked at the example eight in terms of how they made sure that they never worked on the Sabbath by coming with these little rules and regulations to make sure that they keep the Sabbath. Says, I have done this and done that and done that. But now what you are saying to me now here sounds impossible. How can I do these things that you are saying? And what Nicodemus misses here is that it is God who does it. It is God who causes this. It is God who gives this new birth. And maybe you might be asking, but how could Nicodemus have known? How could he have known that for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, they had to be born again? How should he have known that for someone to enter into the kingdom of God, for someone to be God's, to be part of God's people and to have God be their God, that they had to be washed clean with water, that they had to be regenerated and be given a new heart? You know, where would he have seen that from? And we see a bit of that in, in, in what Christ says in verse 10, when he responds to him, says, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? You know, Nicodemus was one who taught the law. He taught the Bible. And so he should have seen. So clearly these things are there within the scriptures. And the text we just looked at now from Ezekiel 36 shows us that these things were there. For it is clear there that God says that he will wash them clean. And, and we can just, if you can just go back with me there to Ezekiel 36 again, I just want just to see that it is God who does this work and Nicodemus should have seen that. Instead of him striving and trying to make sure that he earned his place into the kingdom by keeping the law, he should have seen that for, for people to be in the kingdom, it is God who does it. So if you look at Ezekiel chapter 36 from verse 25, look at the number of times God says, I will. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Again in verse 25, I will cleanse you. Verse 26, I will give you a new heart. Verse 26 again, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. It was there in the scriptures. It was there and it was clear that it is God who does this. And so Nicodemus, is, he, he is right to be confused. How can I do this? And the answer is you cannot do it. It is an act of God. It is God who does it. It is God who saves. He is the one who gives the new birth. So being born again is a work of God. He is the one who washes us clean. He is the one who renews us by giving us a new heart. And just pausing here to really think about this truth, that it is God who does it. 
So if you're sitting here this morning and you are one who is mature in the faith, you're one who's got a solid foundation, you are hold, you're trusting onto the right things, you're holding on to Christ. This message to you this morning that it is God who does it is a reminder to praise him. It is a reminder to give thanks to God because he is the one who's worked this great salvation for you. It is a reminder that you ought not to boast for it is God who saves. He is the one who has worked the salvation for you. And it's again just another reason to, to praise God for he is the one who made a plan. He's the one who came down to save us. Or maybe you're also sitting here this morning and you know, you've got doubts. Your faith, your foundation is not as solid. You know, you're wondering if you, you are secure in your salvation. And I, I want to point you this morning to the many I wills that we see in Ezekiel chapter 36. That it is God who does these things. He is the one who cleanses you. He is the one who gives you a new heart. And let that be what you hold on to. Let that be that what that increases your faith. Trust in that. Hold on to that. Because it is God who does it. It is not you. It is not within your own strength. So if you find that you're failing, that you're weak, it's fine. Hand it over to God. Trust in him to do the work. And the conversation now continues where it's almost like there is a, an unspoken question in the mind of Nicodemus now. You know, he came to Christ saying, we know that you're a teacher come from God. But now these things that he's hearing, I'm sure now in the back of his mind, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How do I even know that all these things are true? On what authority are you saying these things? Because you're completely redefining our understanding of how we are included in the kingdom of God. And Christ responds to him in verses 11 to 13. He says to him in verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Christ is saying here to Nicodemus, I know what I am talking about because I have seen it. And I have seen what I am talking about because I come from heaven. Nicodemus came to Christ looking to him just as a teacher. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. But here Christ says, no, no, I am not just a teacher. I am the son of God. I am one who has descended from heaven itself. I am the son of God that is mentioned in Daniel chapter 7, which Nicodemus would have been familiar with. Again, now he's saying that I am saying these things with much authority. You know, I'm not just saying these things as just some other teacher within Israel, but I'm saying these things as God himself, for I am the son of God. And so we see here Christ showing the authority and he says to Nicodemus, you know, I could explain these things to you using heavenly examples, but you're not going to get them, especially if you're not even understanding the earthly examples that I'm showing you. In me telling you that you must be born again, I'm showing you the impossibility of you saving yourself. For how can you make yourself born again? You know, it's an impossible task. You're already old. You know, how do you do that process for yourself? And he's trying to pointing him to the fact that it is a work of God. It is God who saves and now towards the end here, Christ moves on to explain how this practically happens. You know, we've seen that for one to enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. And that being born again is an act of God where he cleanses us and renews us. But practically, what does that look like for us? And Christ leverages here an example from uh, the book of Numbers where the people of Israel were in the wilderness. He says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So if you're not familiar with the, the story of the serpent being lifted up in, in the wilderness from Numbers chapter 21, the, the people of Israel were, were in the wilderness with Moses after having left Egypt, and they start to grumble and complain against both Moses and God. You know, they say things like, there's no water here, there's no food. Why did God bring us here? And God sends out these fiery serpents into their midst and they bite a lot of people and those who are bitten die and a lot of people die at this time and in seeing people dying the people if it is our turn and they come back to Moses and say please go back to God and plead for us that he may take these serpents away and the Lord commands Moses and says to him make a serpent out of bronze and hang it on a pole 
and say to the people, if you are bitten, come and look at the snake that hangs on this pole and you will not die and you will be saved. And so Christ uses that example to describe here what happens practically for us, for us to be saved, for us to be born again. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You know, Christ himself here, he being the Son of Man, has to be lifted up on a cross. He has to hang in shame on that cross to die for the sins of men, that anyone now who looks at him may be saved. And so Christ is saying here that he will be lifted up just like that serpent was. And, and notice what he says, that whoever believes in him, just like in Numbers, Moses said to the people, if you are betting, just look at it. Anyone. There was no criteria. You know, it wasn't like if you were like a, not su such a bad person and you got betting, you could look and be saved. He says anyone who looks, even the people who were grumbling and complaining the most, if they were betting and they turned and looked at that serpent that hung on that tree, they were healed. And so similarly here, the Lord Jesus Christ says, whoever believes in him. And so as we're looking forward to Easter now, thinking of the cross of Christ, he says here that whoever believes in him, whoever looks at the Son of Man as he hangs on that tree, will be saved. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you do not believe, you, know, you have not yet trusted in Christ for your salvation, what Christ is saying here is that look to him and be saved. Look to him as he hangs on the cross. Salvation is in him. It is by believing in Christ as our Savior that we get to be born again, that God works then in our hearts to regenerate us and to wash us clean. And you could also be sitting here thinking, you know, I hear you talking about how God saves and how God washes people, but you do not know the extent of my sin. You do not know how much I have sinned. You do not know the things that I have done. And I want to say to you this morning that the word there says, whoever believes, there is no criteria there. Anyone who turns and looks at the Son will be saved. So there is no amount of sin that you can commit that is beyond the saving grace of God. And Christ says there, whoever believes. There is no criteria it's like, you know, these kinds of people that believe. It's like anyone who believes. There is no mention of lineage here. It's not saying for the Jews who believe, for the Jews who look at the Son. But it says for whoever believes, he will be saved. And Christ continues then in verse 15 to tell us that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. By believing in Christ, we get to experience this regeneration, this being born again, that then we are excuse me, that we are then admitted into the kingdom of God. Just as Nicodemus started there assuming that he was in a crisis that unless one is born again, so for us to have that eternal life, we, for us to be in the kingdom of God, we need to believe in Christ. And when we think of eternal life there, it is not just about the quantity of the life that, no, it's life that goes on forever, but it's also the quality of the life, that it is life in God's kingdom. We will be living with God himself. And hence, God changes us and transforms us that we can then go into his, his kingdom. We can then go and enjoy being in God's kingdom. For in our sinfulness, we will not enjoy being around the holiness of God. It is not something that would find pleasure being around. But the, the, what people who believe in Christ get is eternal life. They get what is described for us in verse 28 of Ezekiel chapter 36, where we are told that you know, God will be their people so there will be God's people and he will be their God. You know, for getting eternal life, you get to be with God. You get to be in his kingdom. There's a, a brother who describes the kingdom of God as um, God's people in God's place doing God's will. That's what eternal life is. That is what we get. And you think of that in contrast to some of the things we hear today where people say, come to Jesus, come and believe in Christ that you may have what? Worldly health that you may have worldly prosperity. And those things are just here. What Christ says is that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life, life everlasting, life in the kingdom of God. And that is what we get by believing in Christ Jesus. And now before we, we, we draw to a close, I don't know if you maybe are wondering about Nicodemus. You know, we've been mentioning here that he comes to Christ sincerely seeking to understand that he, he, he has an expectation that Christ has come to announce this kingdom. And even in their interactions, you see that there's elements of sincerity. 
So the question is, did he believe? You know, did he heed the message, the message that Christ evangelizes him with? Because Christ is evangelizing here effectively, sharing the gospel with Nicodemus. Did Nicodemus believe this message? And many commentators argue that he did. You know, and this is based on other instances later on where we see Nicodemus. You know, the first one is in chapter 7 of the, of the book of John, where we are told that the, the council, the rulers, the religious rulers, were seeking to arrest Christ. And Nicodemus intervenes and says, since when do we throw out due process? How can we just arrest someone without having them first appear? But even more strikingly, it is at the end of the book of John in chapter 19, where we see Joseph of Arimathea having been granted permission to go and bury the body of Christ. We are told in verse 39 of John chapter 19 that there alongside him was Nicodemus. He had come there with spices to come and prepare the body of Christ for burial. And so from this we can see that Nicodemus let go of the previous things that he was holding on to, and he held on to the truth as revealed here. His hope has now moved. His hope used to be previously in his lineage as a Jew. His hope used to be previously in what he had done as a Pharisee. But now we see here that he now has turned his affiliation, that his hope has now moved to Christ. And so if this morning you also have come here having your hope in the other things that are not Christ, having the other... Looking to other things for salvation and not looking to Christ himself. Like Nicodemus here, I encourage you to turn. I encourage you to shift the object of your faith. Hold on to Christ, for that is the foundation that is steady. That is the foundation that will not disappoint you. And in conclusion, what have we seen from the text this morning? We've seen that to enter the kingdom of God, we must, our faith must be in the right object. You know, sincerity is not the thing that matters. The object of our faith is important. And we've also seen that the way to enter the kingdom can only be given by God himself. It is he only who gives the new birth. And we've also seen that the gospel call to look at the Son and be saved is for everyone. Anyone out there can look to Christ and be saved. And we've also seen that those who are invited they get to spend an eternity with God. That is the prize that they get. That is the reward. Being saved, we get to be God's people in his kingdom. And the Apostle John, commentating or reflecting on this dialogue between Christ and Nicodemus in verses 16 to 21, says these words, which I think are quite fitting for us to close with, almost looking at this as a summary statement of the text that we've just looked at. He says in verse 16 of John chapter 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not die, but have everlasting life. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that, Father, you may help us not to take for granted, Father, the foundation of our hope and faith. That indeed, Father, we may be holding on to the truth, Father, that as we are confidently saying that we are in your kingdom, Father, that we see ourselves being where you are, Lord, that we may be holding on to the right things. And I pray that, Father, you may help each and every one of us here to search our hearts and see if we are indeed holding on to the right things. And we pray, Father, for any here who might not yet believe, Lord, that you may draw them to yourself, that, Father, they, you may draw them to yourself, that they may look upon the Son and be saved. We pray for all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.